saw something funny this week. Uh, so I live in St. Charles, and there's Main Street in St. Charles, and I typically go across it with, by 7th Avenue, and 7th Avenue is really, really quiet. And I have a gift wherever I approach traffic lights, they just go to red. And I was approaching it, they went to red. And I stopped, thought, I'm going to have to wait another two or three minutes, it's a really, really busy road. Just relaxing, like three or four seconds in. And then the loudest horn went off. It was like, Aah! and I jumped out of my skin. But I didn't jump out of my skin as much as someone else. So I looked forward, and there was this huge truck, the kind that you get on ice road truckers. And the light had turned red, and the car in front of it was obviously texting or something. So the guy had just put the horn on, and this car went, Phew! so it's absolutely panicked. Uh, it was really fun to watch. And what it, it scared the living daylights out of me. What it reminded me of is the book of James is a little bit like that. The book of James is like someone's putting a horn on super, super loudly. And you're like, uh, I drive a small VW Jetta. If I put the horn on, it's kind of a... <laughs> People sometimes think a bike is behind them. Uh, so, as I represent what James wants in this letter, know that he was writing to the persecuted church, and there was like a wildfire of persecution coming. And that sounding, that horn, was entirely appropriate as a pastor, caring for the scattered flock. And he needed them, it's like warning. And so what we have in the book of James is a pastor who dearly loves the people who used to call his church home, or those that are spread out around the Roman Empire. And in it, there are lots of warnings. And as I teach, I want to bring the truth of that warning out. Often, it's about religion, saying, don't be religious. My brother took a wrecking ball through religion. So don't start putting it back on yourselves. It's all about a love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The second thing, he has this deep concern for them. So I'm going to teach the warning, but pastorally, I'm going to teach what that means for us here as well. So I do my study on the Monday, kind of break the back of the text, and then I spend the rest of the week marinating in it. And part of that marinating looks like contemplating through, okay, how does this apply to us, us from James to the persecuted, scattered church to us here in Wheaton? So you're going to hear some kind of harsh texts. Uh, no, it was done out of pastoral concern. And as, uh, as I'm teaching through it, understand the principles there. What does it say about God? What does it say about man? And then I'll move into a time of application. Hands up if you've ever fallen in love. It changes everything. I still remember the first time I met Shelley. Uh, the world just becomes a brighter place. And you really, uh, you think, I need to get in shape, you get rid of the facial hair. There's a whole host of things. You try and make yourself look presentable. And you really want to bring yourself in. You want to be better for this person. Uh, and it completely changes you. The same I found when I became a parent. So I had a, a love, a deep love for Shelley, but it was also mixed with a physical attraction. When my kids came along, I was just overwhelmed with this un unconditional protective love. 
And it made me want to be a different kind of person. I was going to be a dad. And the things, the, the shortcomings I had, that would impact other people. So it really wanted uh, me to, it made me want to change. It's the same when we enter a love relationship with God. So God is in this eternal love relationship. And through Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross, taking the punishment our sins deserve, we can enter into that eternal love relationship. We have it now, the Holy Spirit living within us. Jesus invites us to be his friends. And in the fullness of time, we'll be in the presence of God forever. And as James is writing this letter to the church, he's saying, if you really know the love of God, it would have changed you. So in the midst of the warnings, there's also a, hey, if your heart is so hard and you love religion and you don't want to change, it's kind of a warning sound. At the same time, the challenge is, if you have a new heart and God loves you, stop going back to your old self. Stop judging people. Stop trying to do all these big deeds for everyone to see so they know you're a good person. So let's go back to the simple, basic. Seek presence with God. So bear that in mind as I'm reading this text to you. It's a pastor who's put his hand on the horn. Uh, he needs the church, to, uh, he wants the people to remember their love of God and God's love of them and how that works out, not to go back to things that they've been freed from. So you bow your heads as I pray before I read the text for today. Father God, you have, you have a reckless love in that it, it shreds us. We cannot help but respond to you. Lord, wherever we were, wherever we were lost, Lord, you came and found us. Lord, this scattered church probably felt lost. They probably felt oppressed and overwhelmed. And all these worldly things broke in. Father, that happens in our lives as well. Thank you for this text. Please speak to us through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm reading from James 4. It's verses 1 through to 12. I'm going to read it in one chunk, and then there's going to be two sections to the message. It's a warning against worldliness. That's probably the title for this message. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? First chunk, the first section of this message is this tension that James creates. And it hinges on the word adulterous. Calling this section cheating on God. If you've ever been cheated on, even if you're a young teenager, it hurts like hell. And it causes devastation. It can leave wounds that go on into adulthood. And cheating on God is equally dangerous. Verses 1 and 2, James is saying, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So all, there's a war raging on inside each one of our hearts. And it's raging and it causes dysfunction, it causes dissatisfaction, it causes division. A parent might think, if only I didn't have this child, I would be a good parent. A spouse might think, you are not the husband I married. You are not giving me fulfillment anymore. It's waging within us. And James says it's part of the human heart. So all of us have this. Yes, we can look at the news and sometimes think, wow, they're depraved. But James is saying, don't stand even in judgment on those people because you have the same war going on within you. Your heart lusts after things. Your heart desires. And the things we want, we cannot get. We steamroll over people to get them. We steamroll over people made in the image of God to get what we want. And it leads to murder. So James says here, it kind of leads to killing What I mean by this is if you fully follow the war that's waging on in our hearts, if we fully follow it, it reveals the full depravity of who we are. There's a news uh, article about a man in Colorado who killed his pregnant wife and his two daughters. If you read some of the backstory, he just had this longing and desire and was a deeply selfish person. On the outside, he might not look evil, but the heart outside the transforming of presence of God. If you follow it, all its desires, it leads to a very, very dark place. And James uses the word kill to let us know it doesn't end well. So you think, well, what's the problem? It says at the uh, end of chapter, verse 2, he says, we don't ask for help. Then verses 3 to 4, I'll just read that now it says, uh, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. She's saying we ask, even when we ask, we ask wrongly. So Jesus uh, prayed perfectly on behalf of God. He made requests before God. But Jesus' prayers were for the greater good. Jesus' prayers were part of God's will, part of revealing God's kingdom. 
James is saying to the persecuted church here, and I'm sharing with us here, saying so often when we ask God, it has a deeply self-centered approach. Now, when God is self-centered, it's good for everyone. It's that overflow of love and blessing. When we're self-centered, typically taking from someone else. Saying you're motivated by your pleasures. You're asking with wrong motives. That hole that each of us has in our heart, the, the waging roar that goes on, we're typically praying for earthly, worldly things to bring us fulfillment. Saying to God, if I just had this, if I just had that relationship, if so-and-so just changed in this regard, if I had a different boss, if blah, 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 the list goes on and on. Saying you are looking for source of ultimate fulfillment, joy and happiness outside God. And you're not going to get it. And at times he hands us over to that, hopefully so that we get to the end of ourselves and go back to him. He'll typically, as a loving father, doesn't always ask, it doesn't always give us what we ask for. It says adulterous. It says you adulterous people. We can have a fulfilling relationship with God where he meets every single one of our needs. That deep need for fulfillment, that deep need for belonging, that deep need for significance, that need of hope, that need of forgiveness, they are all met in that love relationship with God. But we think he's not enough so often. That, that, that's not good enough, God. Say, so, yeah, I've got that, God, but can you also do this and this and this for me? It's like we want God and something else. And James is saying here, no, God says, choose. It's not me and all this stuff. It's, it's an either or. It says here in verse uh, 5, uh, or do you think, oh, sorry, verse, second half of verse 4, therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We're saying, God, I want all of this worldly stuff in addition to you. With all of these other things to fill this God-shaped hole in my life. God, no, you choose. You choose. The good news, the beauty of the good news is that we are met with grace and that God jealously longs for us. Verses 5. He says, you think without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. You know, even right now, as we are sat here, whether we uh, have never given ourselves to God, whether we think that our relationship with God is perfect, or whether we're kind of lukewarm or somewhere in between, God is yearning for you right now. If you've ever been in a long-distance relationship or away from family for a period of time, that longing is a kind of a deep aching. You, you yearn to be reunited. God, the creator of the heavens, the creator of the earth, he's yearning, longing for each one of us even now. This word jealous, so he jealously longs. There's lots of words that if we think in human terms and apply them to God, they make God smaller. So God is self-centered. Well, 
well, that's kind of arrogant of him. No, when God is self-centered, he is love itself. And when he is self-centered, that's good for everyone. When God is jealous, it's not a human jealousy. The best way I can describe it, if one of my daughters, um, who I'm investing in and caring for and loving, they got to an adult and decided to marry someone who was kind of like a sadist, my heart would be jealous on that wedding day. I want the very best for one of my daughters. I know how this is going to end. I really do not want that to happen. And God is jealous for us, his children. He's longing for us. Saying, stop asking me for worldly things. You have me. I'm what's best for you. And he's jealous when we choose other stuff because he knows he cares for us so much. Like, this, this isn't the best. I've got more for you. That's what James is saying here. And the beauty is he gives us more grace. There is an unending supply of grace. Grace is God's love. Grace is God's love. There is an unending supply. It's not, here's some grace, and I've forgiven your sins, now you're my child, and now you need to obey me or else. No, there is this huge, immeasurable amount of grace, the same size as God's love, to cover everything ahead of us, everything we've done in the past, every time our idolatrous heart goes somewhere else in the future. So James sets up this tension of, okay, here's cheating on God. You were made for God. He jealously longs for you. But stop praying out of this warring heart. Stop praying for things to fill God's space when he loves you. And he won't always answer your prayer because he loves you so much. The second section from verse 6, is, 6 through to 12 is making it right with God. First one was cheating on God. This is making it right with God. I'm going to read verses 6 to 10 uh, through to you now. I want you to listen out for a couple of things. Listen to uh, grace, the, the, the measure of grace in there. As it says the word submit, I want you to think through, okay, I'm being told not to boss God around. Does that make sense? God, I need this. You should do that. You should have done that. How about this? So here, grace. Here, don't uh, boss God around. And here, the spiritually healthy place of coming to the end of ourselves. It's the most spiritually healthy place possible. I'm going to go into the Beatitudes in a little bit to explain this. So here, hear these things as I read that out. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we humble ourselves before God, it changes our prayer requests. So we can typically, my default is to go with God to tell him a lot in an entitled sense of, I need this, I know you're very rich, so I want that. 
expect him to meet every one of our needs. When we go to him humbly, we are entitled as his very children to inherit everything that is his, to be in heaven eternally with him, to have that eternally fulfilling relationship with him. And instead of praying out of right, we pray out of recognition. So instead of praying out of right, we pray out of recognition. This is how we make it right with God. It'd be a prayer as simple as this. God, I know that you are enough for me. Show me your love. Show me your beauty. Show me your grace. I want to turn back to you. I want to get our relationship right And some of us, most of us, will say, I want to get our relationship right again. It's that prayer of recognition puts God in his rightful place. And him being in his rightful place is so much better for us, his children. Verses 7 to 8 is saying, don't boss God around. Don't boss God around, but instead, as his child, not just be in his courtyard, it's not just knock on the palace door, it's to be in his very throne room itself as his loving child says, come near to God and he will come near to you. When we're encountering the love of God, when we're encountering God's presence, it cannot help but change us. It's like falling in love. There is this desire to be different. And God loves each one of us exactly as we are right now, today. But he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to stay there. He's got so much, so much more for us. Verses 8 to 10, it's this picture of coming to the end of ourselves. I came to the end of myself mostly through the 90s, really badly in the year 2000, and then up to 2003. An addict, a self-centered person. I'd been sitting on this uncomfortable throne of my life. I didn't realize how uncomfortable it was until I got off and put God on. But that it was a, for me, it was addictions. I cannot change myself. With all the willpower I'm putting in, I cannot shake this fear of death. I cannot shake this feeling of guilt. I cannot shake this despair, this, this kind of warring nature, but it's throughout my body. To come to the end of yourself, God's like, now you're ready. And it's not like we have to pick ourselves up. He just reaches down and brings us up to be with him. That is why Jesus, as he starts his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, with the first, I'm going to do the first three Beatitudes. James would have known these. He starts off with this picture of spiritual bankruptcy himself. So this is Matthew 5. I'm going to read verses 3 uh, to 6. Or I'm going to explain verses 3 to 6. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The seven Beatitudes are actually seven discipleship steps. Number four is the critical one. Step one is, I cannot save myself. Like we know, all of our religion, all of our good deeds, everything that we can put before God, it's not enough to sit with him in the heavenly realms. That's why Jesus says blessed. The word blessed here 
uh, means you do not want for anything. It comes from the word makarios. There's an island in Greek, uh, in Greece, uh, after that name, and it's called the Blessed Isle. And it's everything you would ever want is on this island. You'd never have a need to leave the island. And Jesus says, hey, you're blessed when you're poor in spirit. You're blessed when you're spiritually bankrupt. Uh, surprising. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He knows that when we get broken, come to the end of ourselves, we are on that process of being in a relationship with God. Second, the attitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See the similarity in James? He's saying you should weep, mourning, all of this stuff. The mourning here means that we are racked through with guilt for who we are. I used to look at myself in the mirror when I was an addict and think, how did I become this? Like, this, was, this was not what I shared when I was a five-year-old, what you want to be when you're older. I don't even want anyone to really know how bad it is. And there's this distraughtness. We are, we are troubled by who we are. We're troubled by the very nature of our heart without God that it covets and steamrolls people to get what we want. And it says you'll be comforted. It means if you're really mourning over your spiritual bankruptcy and all that junk in the past and all that junk you're going to do in the future, you'll be comforted. God's saying you'll be forgiven. So you need to mourn and then you'll be forgiven. The attitude number three, it says, Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So we come to the end of ourselves, the attitude one. The attitude two, we mourn, we're <laughs> grieved by our sin. The attitude three, we're meek. God, I have nothing to offer you. I genuinely have nothing to offer you except me, just as I am with all of my brokenness. I gave him an addict. And what kind of transaction is that? Give me your son, I'll give you this. The attitude number four, and this is where God hears the call, meets our needs. We have that forgiveness in Christ. And we are then, in the reality of just being in the image of God, becomes we're now a child of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So James is setting up this tension. You're cheating on God. Your heart wants all of these things. If you've never been in a relationship with God before, repent. And James is also saying, and if you keep turning away from God, guess what? You get the grace the same way. You turn back to God, say, I'm sorry, you are enough. I want more of you. Christianity is not a one-way ticket to heaven. Christianity when we put our relationship and our trust in Jesus, it's a, a, an eternal relationship. Someone who we can call father, someone who calls us friends, that's mind-boggling. And James is saying the same. He's, he's pressed that truck horn with all of these hard words. But no, as he's coming to the end of all of these difficult sayings that he said, he's saying, you humble yourself, God will exalt you. We learned about that earlier on in the teaching series in Philippians, that Christ was able to fully humble himself. He's able to fully humble himself because God was going to lift him up. And even today, as we're sat here, 
Jesus is at the right-hand side of God, praying for each one of you. Praying for each one of you, speaking words of love over you before God. So verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So once the prayer of recognition has been done, once we're in that relationship with God, or we've said to him, make my relationship right with you again, it's actually reasonable to do it every day. Now, if we never did it, we would still be perfect in God's eyes. But we would be settling for a whole lot less than who he wants to transform us to be. We're saying, uh, God, I know you're enough for me. Show me your love. Show me your beauty. I want to get our relationship right again. And then having been forgiven all of that, having been forgiven a perpetually idolatrous heart, James says, and now do not judge others. I have forgiven each one of you so much. That's what Jesus would say. Why are you judging someone else? Like, really? As I was contemplating this message for our church, I had the image of a, a masked ball. Lots of people at the masked ball putting masks over their face, pretending they're some kind of dignitary. The reality is we're all dignitaries. We're all children of the king. But he doesn't want us to wear our masks. And when we look at one another, that's a child of God. That's a work in progress, just like each one of us. And it's not down to their willpower to be transformed. It's down to God's grace. God is faithful. And throughout history, when man has been unfaithful throughout our lives, when we have been unfaithful, God keeps the process going and going and going. That's why James says, don't judge. Get to this place, do not judge judge. Uh, verse 12, there is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Religion looks like judging other people based on outward appearances. Again, James says, my brother has taken a wrecking ball through religion. Don't you dare put other people down and judge them. You have no idea what I'm doing in their hearts. You don't know where they've come from. You don't know where they're going. So James, pastoral concern, get out religion. He wants religion to get out of his church and his transforming love relationship to come back in. Message so far. It's this warning against worldliness. It says Worldliness looks like cheating on God. It's asking us, God, you're not enough, give me more. And the way we make that right is we say, God, you are enough. And then we trust him for whatever else happens. But the fullness of the more will come when we meet him face to face. We make it right with this prayer of recognition. We recognize who God is. And the beauty in recognizing who God is, we recognize who we are. The application for today is verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Another way of saying it is draw near to God. Now some of us in here may be thinking, well, I'm not sure if this is really real. Remember, I wasn't sure if God was real. I'd got to the place where I knew before coming to Christ I was no longer the center of the universe. But I didn't know if God was real or not. 
But I prayed for him to forgive me, for me to live for him. And I suddenly realized he is real. The message here as well is if we're sitting here saying, I've already prayed the prayer of faith. I put my trust in Jesus. This doesn't apply to me. It does. Like it never ends well when we try and fill God-shaped holes with worldly things. He has so much more for each one of us. So draw near to God. Say, stop, stop chasing idols. Say, stop putting people in the place of Christ. Stop crushing Christ's children with your expectations. My spouse isn't the person I married. They're not fulfilling me. My child is so disobedient, they make me look bad. That's the spirit of religion. We're crushing people with our own hidden expectations that they probably don't even know about. It's called a Pharisee. There's a ton of them everywhere. Saying, you may not think this applies to you, but stop putting uh, your expectations on God's children. He is doing a work in them. Do that prayer of recognition. There may be some people in this room who have been the victim of that super hard heart. They've been the victim of self-righteousness. And I want you to know that you are wanted by God. The words, I love you, when we first hear them in a relationship, are so powerful and moving because they basically say, someone wants me. Someone wants to be in a relationship with me. God wants to be in a relationship with you. God wants a more full relationship with you. I am so sorry if someone didn't value you in that way. I am deeply sorry. Just as we had an image of a masked ball this week, someone gave a word this morning of a person looking in the mirror. They're kind of seeing Cinderella back. Like a, a, it's a woman that's bedraggled. She sees herself, and it's this awfully poor, wretched person. And the image was that God then moves them to a mirror. And there is this princess. There is a daughter of the king. And that's for some of us who have been hurt by people who have not loved us as Christ loved us. For we judge too much, I've hurt people by not loving them as Christ would have loved them. But God would say to you, whoever that's speaking to here, say, no, you're not defined by your own perception of yourself. You're not defined by depression and anxiety. You're defined by my very view of you. People treated you like a Cinderella. People thought you were nothing. God thinks you're everything. He wants you, doesn't need you, but he wants you. That's even better. So draw near to God. There are some of us in this room as we wear the mask. I certainly have been one of those before. I think if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me and they wouldn't want me to minister God's love to them. Guess what? We'll be perfect when we get to heaven and before we get to heaven, God is able to use us. Like what the devil intended for evil in our lives, God always can use for good. See, each person here has a gift that we can share the church. Each person here, with some of the experiences you've gone through, you can walk alongside others, give them hope. We have life groups can do that. 
Discipleship relationships are another way. You meet periodically with someone to be friends. And as we're friends, we have what's best in mind for one another. And through that trust and love, we're able to give different people our own insights and wisdom. If I meet with you, I meet with nine guys, uh, you probably hear stuff you say every single Sunday in my message. Thank you. It's not like, oh, you meet the pastor and he's going to give you some diamonds. No, there's this reciprocal relationship. Everyone has gifts to give for the greater good. You're not marked by this having to wear a mask. This is a family feast. We get to walk together as we draw near to God. And finally, the people in this room, it's not just a child of God. It's not just, yeah, you're a child with some gifts. God wants you to know that you're beloved. You're beloved by God. There's nothing any of us can do to earn his love. It's overwhelming. It's never-ending. It's as common around us as there are particles. We cannot escape light. Guess what? We cannot escape God's love. And he is yearning to be with you. And so often we just need to turn back to him, that prayer of recognition, like, God, show me your love. I'm going to invite the band back on stage. We're going to drop the lights for my next illustration. Let's have the lights dropped. If you lose a necklace during this demonstration, that was not the intention of it. I'm not robbing people. Here is William Holman uh, Hunt. He was an English painter in the 19th century. Very famous painting here called Light of the World. And it's a picture of Jesus. Look, I've got a pen with a laser. God is good. Uh, there's Jesus. Oh, and there's a door. William Holman Hunt used to get very, very frustrated that he would regularly, even near his death, some 30 years after doing the painting, he'd regularly have to explain it to people. People go, that's nice, but you've forgotten one thing. That's a door, and it doesn't have a handle. And Jesus is knocking. How's he going to get in? And William Holman Hunt would explain. No, this picture represents Revelation. Revelation 3.20. Let me read that to you now. So, Apostle John has seen an image of the glorious king, the warrior riding into battle. And Jesus says this, it's to the church in Laodicea, but it's the reality of the love relationship that he invites each one of us into. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It does not need a handle on the outside because the only handle that lets Jesus in is on the inside. Does that make sense? So as we sit here, and there's this sense of, I think I've been somewhat idolatrous, either a lot or I have this constant predisposition to idolatry. 
the lie you'll be tempted to believe by the devil. Is sorry? Oh yeah, prove it. Climb this mountain. Put on a crown of thorns. Break yourself, whip yourself. Be in agony. Then you can go to God and show him you're sorry. No. That's a lie. Jesus did all of that. Jesus did all of that. All we have to do is where God is yearning, longing for us, jealousy, just let him in. Now there's people here that probably have depression and anxiety. I have been there. I want you to know, as we give an opportunity to come up and pray, sometimes walking forwards is too much. Particularly if you have depression and anxiety, I want you to know that Jesus would say to you, just, just open your heart. I will meet you exactly where you are. You've never trusted him before. He says, open the door. Let me in. I will show you that I'm good. And for those of us who just go through life and we forget the treasure of the presence of God, we forget the transforming nature when we encounter God's love. He says, I'm here. I'm all around. Look beside you. Open your heart. Let me come in. And the more we do that, the more we'll hear the little invitations in our head that say, do this, or you're more than that. So friends, will you stand? And I'm going to pray that prayer of recognition over us. We're going to have some people up the front. You will be met with grace when you are prayed for them, when you're prayed by them. If you're not yet ready to come forward to receive prayer, do that prayer of recognition in the quietness of the voice in your head. Say, God, I recognize you. Show me your beauty. Show me your love. I want to get my relationship right with you again. And his grace will wash all over Father God, I pray for each person here, Lord. I pray that their identity would be based in you. Their identity would not be based in their own image of themselves. Their identity would not be based in the neglect they've experienced, the neglect they've given themselves, Lord. When we go after other stuff in place of you, but their identity would be that beautiful picture which you give us of your sons and daughters invited to the ball looking glorious as we enjoy your presence now and for eternity.